Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Patrick. So I'd like to start by highlighting a few moments in your career trajectory that I think connect your education in history with the work that you're doing in the private sector right now. You're a trained historian. You earned your BA in history and German um, at the University of Notre Dame. Then you did your PhD in environmental history from uh, at SUNY Albany in 2015. Mm-hmm. And your dissertation examined the politics and legacy of federal coastal conservation initiatives. It was titled Coastal Parks for a Metropolitan Nation, How Postural Politics and Urban Growth Shaped America's Shores. And then you worked for the National Park Service as an interpretive employee at several sites and also for several environmental policy organizations in Albany, New York. Mm -hmm. And now you work at a private company called Historical Research Associates Incorporated. So if it's okay, let's start by talking about um, maybe a little bit of the background, your pivot, and some of the short-term roles that um, appear on your LinkedIn profile. Um, Why did you do a PhD? Yeah, I... um... I think the very honest and maybe not most exciting answer is that I didn't, it was 2010. It was in the middle of the recession. It was hard to find work. I liked history and I really liked the process of challenging perspectives and th- and like the intellectual process that history had taught me as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. And I had worked with an environmental historian and I liked how it kind of brought together my interest in the environment and then got to think through how things got to where they are. So I very much liked environmental history, and I I tried to apply for a lot of other jobs out of undergrad at nonprofits or doing environmental work, and I just frankly like wasn't very successful. Mm-hmm. And I thought that maybe a history PhD could be a way to help me get some more of a job where I could have an intellectual, some kind of intellectual component to my job, and also just like buy myself time and try to figure out what to do. And so I, I got into a PhD program where I was funded and I had a stipend. Uh-huh. So it felt like a good um, enough financial move at the time, but uh, this but is fascinating. Actually, this is fascinating. <laughs> I think because because a lot of people that that uh, that I know and that I'm sure you know go to do a PhD maybe against their better judgment and actually for very idealistic reasons. But it sounds like there was a very practical component to your thinking there, right? Which yeah, yeah, there definitely was, and I um and I figured too, like if it turns out that I don't like it and I want to just get a job, I can Mm -hmm. go get a job out of there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that people don't like to talk about their personal lives as connected to their professional life. But I'll say Mm -hmm. that like one reason I went to the University of Albany is because my partner was in the area and Mm -hmm. we had been apart for a while and I wanted Mm -hmm. to be closer. Mm -hmm. So um, all those things factored into my decision. I'll come back to the practical value of the PhD. But can I ask you, you know, why, why did you decide to pursue a career outside of academia uh, in the end? I suppose that's, that's sort of, you know, that's the question I had in my mind and that you answered partially because this is what you had in, in your mind in uh, in the first place, right? But, yeah. but but I guess maybe there's a way of inverting it and, and sort of think about if you were thinking about going to academia after your PhD, despite the, these, these uh, initial practical um, motivations? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that I think part of me, maybe, you know, maybe in the back of my mind, I thought, okay, maybe that's possible. I I didn't think I wanted to be in academia. But one thing that I found convinced me that I didn't want to be in academia was watching my colleagues struggle to find jobs Mm -hmm. and to add 
and many of them were adjuncting and in very exploitative positions. And it didn't look like something I wanted to do. And I think that the realistic, I mean, just to be realistic. So I was at the University of Albany SUNY, which is a great school. I really loved being there, but Mm -hmm. um, there are so few tenure track history positions. And then especially like in subfields that the reality is that most people right. who get those positions went to better school, like went to IVs or went to really, yeah. really top tier schools. And so I was very realistic and under no illusion that like I would be able to get one of those types of jobs. Mm-hmm. And so I think that really cemented it for me that mm-hmm. I kind of liked working in more practical things. I've never been one to just want to think only about ideas. I like to apply things. And so, mm-hmm. but then the, the reality of the job market and watching my friends really struggle financially and personally through it made me not want to go into it. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So given that you knew how you wanted to go about your career and that it would not be academia, I wonder if you did something that a lot of people who set their mind on being a professor actually don't do, which is network in the professional world. Did you do that during your PhD years? Yes, I spent so much energy. Sometimes I think to the chagrin of my advisor, because I would I was doing my work and I was TAing, but I, I spent a lot of time trying to get other work or networking or internships. So, so that's kind of how I got into my other positions. So I, I tried to approach it like, okay, I'm in Albany, New York. What's in Albany? It's the state capital of New York state. There are so many government agencies that are based here. Like all the, I'm in environmental stuff. So the department of environmental conservation, there's a state parks department. There are also a lot of environmental nonprofits that have an office in Albany because of the state government being here. Mm -hmm. And so I started um, going to some like lobby days or different environmental events to network with Mm -hmm. people. And then that led to internships and then eventually jobs with several nonprofit organizations in Albany. But I definitely, I did that specifically because I I just kept picturing I was gonna finish this PhD and not be able to find work. And I did not wanna be in that position. So I, I started that early and I did it while I was going through grad school. So how was your experience um, working at the National Park Service? And, you know, could you talk about what you did? Um, I, I know that you held several different kinds of roles that are, mm-hmm. I guess, overlapping related. And I guess I'm in- interested, especially in how your historical training maybe helped you, you know, how it fit into into these different roles or maybe one that stood out for you. Yeah, I so I worked at several national parks and I did that in the summers and would work in seasonal positions. And I worked at uh, a Civil War battlefield down in Georgia uh, at Cape Cod National Seashore and then at Manzanar National Historic Site, which is a site um, where the U.S. government incarcerated people of Japanese descent during World War II. So at Manzanar, my historical training was especially relevant because I, I did oral histories with folks who, who had been incarcerated at Manzanar. Um, and then research on them and oral histories. So, so that was very relevant, my historical training. At the other two parks, I, I gave tours and I worked at the visitor center desk. It was very much like public facing. Mm-hmm. I think my historical training is relevant in the sense that when you're giving those types of tours, you're talking about natural and cultural resources to the public. And you're often distilling a lot of complicated scientific or historical or cultural information into some really easy to understand tidbits for someone who's just coming there real quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what we as historians, if we're doing it well, do where we're taking so much complicated information. And as an environmental historian, I also studied ecology and scientific stuff in that area mm-hmm. and boiling it down into, okay, well, what's the point? What's the takeaway? 
Mm-hmm. And I think that that actually really helped my writing also to, to be approaching things in that way. So it's sort of like doing teaching in the field. Yeah. Right? A little For bit. a student uh, who only comes once and wanted to be there. Right. <laughs> <yes>. So. <laughs> right. The occasional students. We, have, we all have those students in the classroom. Um, yeah. Uh, for better or for worse. Is that the kind of uh, job where you grow or are these jobs usually, you know, for a little bit and then you move on to something else? Yeah, more short term. And mm-hmm. and I actually tried to get into a longer term position with the Park Service, but had a difficult time getting through the federal hiring process. It can be kind of hard as an entry level employee to get like a full time long term gig sometimes. Okay. And so I had a lot of success doing short-term seasonal positions and um, and not a lot of success getting a longer-term gig, which is kind of what led mm-hmm. me to other things. <laughs> sure, yeah. Sometimes it's interesting how, how, you know, lack of success in one area actually takes you somewhere else that's often more interesting, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and you also work with the City of Albany and its Sustainability Advisory Committee, um, and I'm reading that, I got that from your profile too. Yeah. Could you talk about your role there and also about, you know, maybe these linkages between your historical expertise, training, transferable skills, maybe, and what you did there. Yeah. And that I will say, um, I should be clear, is a volunteer. It was an appointed position. So okay. I was appointed by the mayor of Albany. And it's a it's a council that reports in advisory capacity to our mayor and common council about sustainability issues. And so the actually reason I resigned is because I was still working my job and then I have a child and it was just too much to do in an unpaid role. Mm -hmm, Um, But I, in that position, I did a lot of kind of trying to connect individuals and groups and city departments that were already working on sustainability issues and, and just help elevate in general, like these efforts and bring them together and, and help advise the mayor and the common council in ways to do this better. And I was, I was co-chair of our equity committee and did a lot of outreach, communications, um, working with our sustainability office to try to help help those things. But I feel I like it was it was mostly really communications and outreach that's what I ended up doing. So would you say that seeing the big picture of these efforts would be some some something that that you were responsible for and that allowed you to maybe maintain these channels of communications between different departments? Is that do I get yeah, it? I would say okay. I would say yes. And I'll say too, like just, you know, that I had a small role, like I was one member of this larger committee. Right. And so it's not like I personally did all of that. But I think yes. And I and I think in all my positions, whether volunteer or paid uh, that relate to sustainability, environmental issues, I think that my historical training and seeing this larger picture of environmental change over time and then where we are and then where we could be, I think really mm-hmm. informs how I approach advocacy on those issues. I do mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. walkability advocacy in um, in Albany and related to that committee because I think, I think a lot of our sustainability issues go back to the fact that we have constructed our communities in a way that caters to cars and requires a lot of materials and a lot of emissions and mm-hmm. making things simpler, closer together, denser, not require as many materials is one is a core component to how we can build more sustainable communities. And so I, I, I think that my environmental history training very much has led me to that conclusion and that type of advocacy. Very interesting. I, I really like what you said, you know, about seeing where we are and where we could be. 
you know, in the in the context of where we've been in many ways, because that really connects to you know three different points in time: mm-hmm. the past, the present, and the potential future. So that that's kind of you know cool way of highlighting what historians can do and can be where they can be useful. I think. Thanks. Yeah, and um, I think I think when you do environmental history, it's I think it's hard to to not think about like these different like we're in a very bad spot environmentally. And mm-hmm. so it's like, I think it draws me to activism and, and thinking through how can we make it better mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of the type of history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, by the way, was it a straightforward choice for you to study environmental history? Um, I think once I realized kind of what it, what it did and what it was, yes, uh-huh. but not exact. So I, um, I've always really, I love being outside. I love like the natural world is definitely what, makes me feel good and be at peace. And I used to think I wanted to study biology. And then I found that in college, like an undergrad, that we just sat in a lab all day doing experiments on tiny things I couldn't see. And uh-huh. it didn't to me feel like it at all connected with like how I how I saw the world uh-huh. and saw the natural world. And so that's when I got into in, in history. And then I, I had a professor who was an environmental historian. I was like, oh, so you're questioning like, why is it like it is? And and what made it that way. And it, it just felt very both holistic and like you could challenge the way we think about things. And I felt in the sciences that there wasn't a lot of that. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I guess there's that, that movement in history between detail and um, and maybe the, the macro scale maybe that is that is quite appealing, I suppose, which you know, maybe doesn't always, it, it's always in sciences, but doesn't always come through in the immediate experience, maybe, right? When, yeah, um, I think it has to do with how they're taught. I, I mean, I know it can vary, but I, I felt sure. in the human in history that I was taught critical thinking and, and uh, I don't know, just, just, just always kind of thinking why, when mm-hmm. I felt in the sciences, the way it was taught was like, memorize this and mm-hmm. then move on. But Interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about your present work. What is the company that you work for now? Could you talk about this? It's called the Historical Research Associates. Uh, what does it do? Yeah. So we are. Yeah, we're called Historical Research Associates. We are a for-profit company of about fifty or so employees, and we are a, a historical research consulting firm. Kind of, it says what we do. We we have so we have two divisions. We have a division that does cultural resource management, which is archaeologists and architectural historians who do a lot of a lot of things related to compliance for the National Historic Preservation Act, like Section one hundred six, Section one hundred ten. Whenever anyone doing construction needs to do historical uh, consultation or archaeological mm-hmm. surveys, things like that. So that's not the division I'm in. That's another division. And then we also have the division I'm in is our history division. And we do a lot of different types of research and writing. Most of us have, everyone has at least a master's um, and many of us have PhDs in history. Mm-hmm. And we, our clients, clients that we work with the most often are federal agencies like the National Park Service, the Army Corps of Engineers, the Forest Service. And we write things like institutional histories, where we write like a history of how the maybe the National Park Service manages a certain park site, how it came to be and how it's been managed. And yeah. that's that tends that then is a tool for future managers. So we might do something like that. We might write a special study about some certain type of history that is contracted out and we would write it mm-hmm. um, for attorneys. We do a lot of environmental litigation, um, tribal and water rights. And what we do is a lot of research kind of like digging whenever attorneys hit hit a wall on the information that they know and they need to figure something out that is in the past, but they're mm-hmm. not quite sure how to find it. Mm-hmm. They bring us in and they recognize our expertise as historians to go and 
and figure that out. Mm-hmm. I'll come back. You know, I'll follow up on this question yeah, in, yeah. in just one second. But I was I was curious when you were you know how did how did you find this company? How, how did you articulate your your value? Um, I suppose the process was maybe different, probably mm-hmm. different than than is it is if you were to apply to university and talk about your value there, right? Could could yeah. you say a word about that? Yes, I could. And um, so I first heard about them actually from a professor who th- th- my company's headquartered in Missoula, Montana, and he was at the University of Montana. So mm-hmm. he knew about them and he said, you know, this might be something that you could be interested in. It's a very like non-academic. He knew I was interested in non-academic work. So I looked at them. I actually applied uh, for a job and and was not interviewed or anything. And then they had another opening a year later and I applied again. Mm-hmm. And one way I articulated my value was my experience in non-academic roles. And I, and I spoke to colleagues later and they said that was very much one of the reasons that they hired me um, because they get a lot of applications from PhDs who maybe are having difficulty on the academic job market and, and want to apply. But if someone is really interested in just being a professor, it's not always a good fit. Uh, We don't teach, we don't research what we want to research. We research what our clients ask us to, Uh and there's no room for, oh, this is really interesting. I want to go deeper because you have to stay <laughs> okay. on budget and in your right. schedule. And so they've, they told me that my experience with working for the government and working for nonprofits, and I had done a lot of, like I had managed projects, I had managed events, I had done community outreach, I, uh-huh. I had networks in those worlds, uh-huh. that that was very appealing to them um, right. because they knew that I kind of understood how how that would work with, you know, with budgets and schedules and client relations and things like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is this is essentially where your networking and your clarity of vision during your PhD years paid off. Yes, yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's also interesting what you said that, you know, unlike in academia where you get to, you know, get seduced by a project maybe and, and dive deeper into something that just really looks interesting. Here you have to have a certain... Uh, more than certain, a really serious discipline because you follow client and you follow the budget, right? It could be challenging because I mean, anytime you're doing research and you really get in the zone and you start finding things and you're like, yeah. oh, this is interesting. And then I find like, I, I mean, on a very day-to-day mundane, but like I just take a lot of breaks where I can pull myself out and say like, uh-huh. okay, what was, what am I really looking for? Like what I, we have scopes of work. Cause, cause we often respond to like an RFP or, mm-hmm. or with the client, we write out the contract and the scope. And so I'm constantly referring back to the scope and like, is this, uh-huh. is this what we're looking? Okay. No, that's too tangential. Let me. Uh-huh. Back. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you ever get to choose the projects that you work, work on from within, you know, the offers and requests made by clients? Yeah. So we do in the sense that if, if it's a project that's, out to RFP, like it's out to bid. And we feel, you know, we don't really have the subject matter expertise for that. Mm -hmm. Or maybe we think that's a scope that's too large and they're not going to have the budget for it. Then we don't apply. Mm -hmm. And we have an internal go, no go process where we decide like, is this something we want to apply for or not? And so in that sense, we do get to choose. So I I write a lot for the National Park Service and Mm -hmm. they put out many RFPs relating to historical research. So we definitely pick ones that we think would be interesting or that we have the expertise for. So it's it's some level of picking, but you don't pick what they're putting out, you know. <laughs> I see. Sure, sure. Uh, makes sense. So you've given us a sense of the kind of of the range of projects that you you work on, you might potentially work on. Uh, could you possibly share a specific project where you feel like your work as an historian, as a researcher, made an impact on 
some specific organization or maybe a community uh, where you feel like you added value to something, maybe, uh, again, an institution, maybe something larger than an institution. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's, I know you're doing some confidential work, <laughs> so I don't <laughs> want to push you to, you know, but uh, yeah, yeah. is there anything that you could share? Yeah, I have. And I have some thoughts. I, I was thinking before this interview about that question, and I can talk some about a couple of projects that are confidential, but I'll just talk broadly. Um, mm-hmm. But we have recently, I've done a few projects that I managed where we had a, a couple different instances. One time there was a university, one time a sorority, actually, like a national sorority, came to us and asked us, they wanted someone to research the history of their organization as relates to discrimination and racism in, in their organization's history in order to kind of come to terms with it themselves and decide how to move forward sometimes on specific things like what things are named or mm-hmm. or or how how they structured things based on earlier um, individuals in the organization. But those two projects, they were different projects, but it was especially interesting because they kind of had already been down a process where both they tried to do the research themselves and then came to a point where it was like, this isn't, this isn't enough. In one of the cases, it, the university, the dean was like, okay, well, this is interesting, but it's not really enough information for us to make a big decision on we, we, you need to do a little bit more. And they thought about going to grad students, um, but they really needed it in a quick turnaround and they needed to make sure it was airtight and they could move forward and make a institutional level decision based on it. And so because of previous work we'd done in, they knew about us in some other fashion and they, that was just very interesting for me because it was, it was Mm non-historians. And as I, in our first conversations, I kind of articulated what we could do and mm-hmm. and how we could bring up information for them and then asked what they wanted and and what would be the most useful way for for you to receive this information. And mm-hmm. so one thing we ended up doing was making a I did a, a lot of historical research and then I made a spreadsheet just uh, explaining, you know, which document was what mm-hmm. because in they needed to make their own decisions internally. That's very much a their community needed to make the decisions, but they wanted the information. And so by doing something like a spreadsheet where I I put by document and then, okay, this is what the document says. Um, These are a few of the takeaways I find. Mm -hmm. Here's the citation. Here's here's the provenance of it. They could take that and do what they wanted with it. Fascinating. This is really cool because I like that you mentioned a spreadsheet. You know, this is you you give us a list basically of 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 the deliverable that you gave to them at this juncture. But what I'm curious about is what is it that they couldn't do themselves that that you offered to them? Was it interpreting of these documents, the rate finding them? I think that, and that's what we find with attorneys too, is that they Uh don't know where to find that level of detail. They know. And and so, so for this one, they had sent me a report they did internally It's all internal confidential. And they had some, they had a few like historic newspapers, articles cited. They had a few like older reports or things, but Mm -hmm. they, the whole process of going into archives is one that I think most people don't feel comfortable with if they don't have historical training. And so the archive, they had done no archival research and the level of historical research, it was just like skimming the top where even mm-hmm. just through databases I have access to through universities, like through, you know, like um, mm-hmm. like we have access to all the databases you would at a university library. Right. Even just there, I found a lot more information than they had found. 
And, and this is what we find with attorneys a lot too. And I think it's a really good thing for people with historical training to remember uh-huh. is that we are really good at finding information. Uh-huh. And I think in this era of the internet and Googling everything, people think, okay, if I find it in a few Google searches, I could get it. And yeah. maybe they know how to use a few different databases. I mean, we are often paid to dig deeper and it is the process of finding those documents that that they had trouble doing. Because of course, most documents are still not digitized, right? No. Most most of the st- stuff out there that um, that could be used for niche purposes for institutions um, are s- somewhere in the archives somewhere that are, it's not available via Google. Exactly, yeah. And I think that the process of archival research is one that people without historical training, it, it feels very intimidating and not something that they can easily step into. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think also just the knowledge of like what databases are useful and have information, because a lot of things that are digitized are, you know, under so many layers of databases that you need to know where to that's go. And, and that's, we're trained to do that. We that's know how true. to do that. Since you've mentioned your work with attorneys, and you also uh, mentioned on your profile, support of litigation services. Mm-hmm. I was curious, what kinds of stuff, you know, I think that goes together with what we just talked about, um, and it was a great example. Thank you. You know, what, what kind of stuff do you find for attorneys that, that helps them advance their projects? Um, yeah, yeah. And so I'll talk, I, I do, a lot of stuff that I do is kind of related to environmental litigation or contaminated sites. So mm-hmm. so it's all confidential, but just to speak in generalities, like if we, um, we might be hired by an attorney who a small, let's take a small case, a small situation first, where maybe they have a client that owns a site that is contaminated. Mm-hmm. And so it has some kind of environmental contamination, chemical contamination on it. And they are going to be required by a state or federal agency to pay like cleanup costs. Mm-hmm. But they pretty certain that other companies also operated there and also polluted that site. And they mm-hmm. want to uh, mitigate their own liability. Oh. So what they will do is hire attorneys to help them with that. Oh. And sometimes if the attorneys are having trouble um, figuring out, okay, what other companies operated here? What what did they do here? How long mm-hmm. were they here? That's when they would bring us in. And so a lot of times when we come in, the attorneys are to the point where they're like, okay, well, we know, we know this is who operated the site. Like we figured that out from tax records, from other things. For this period... We can't really figure out much more detail. We know it's this company name. Um, this is probably what they were doing. Can you figure out like what products were they using? What, you know, what was the extent of their operation? What was the size? And so we would come in and like do a lot of detail on that. Um, Wouldn't a lot of that information be part of these other companies' archives that I imagine they wouldn't be very likely to share with, with an outsider? That's a good question. Yes. <laughs> yes. Companies do not like letting us into their archives. And so often we do this process purely by publicly available archives. So we, and a lot of times we can get at that information without ever seeing the company's papers. Mm. And so we would go to other local, and that's one thing that often our early discussions with attorneys are like, where might this information be? I'm Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, was it in a city where there was a public health service at that time? And were Mm -hmm. they doing inspections? Um, was there, were they part of some kind of trade industry? And is there a periodical that might be talking about, oh, we opened a new plant here. Oh, this happened there. And that we, so our, and that's where some of my colleagues have been doing this kind of research for 20 years, 20 plus years. So they have very, very good knowledge of the types of records, the types of source materials that could be useful, 
even mm-hmm. if it's in a location, we work all over the country. So even if it's in a place we haven't worked, it's like, okay, well, when we did these other three projects, this city agency was helpful. What does that city have? And and they're mm-hmm. really good at drilling into um, what records might be useful. That, that's really cool. I mean, it's, it sounds like there's a... Um, a bit of adventure in your yeah. in your work. <laughs> I, I don't know if the, you know there's there's a room maybe for some kind of a CSI yeah. s- series <laughs> on the kind of work that you do. Um, I think so. I think I I did very much CSS detectives, like uh-huh. we're historical detectives. It's funny because then our we have a health and safety officer, and it's like the only safety concerns we have is like maybe I got a paper cut in the archive. Uh-huh. So the day to day work is like I'm sitting in an archive. But uh-huh. do but you do that. you Look, look over nervously over your shoulder if you go from one side to another sometimes. <laughs> sometimes I, I do, especially when we work on larger, larger contaminated sites. Like if it's a, we work on CERCLA, like super, the Superfund program, um, those sites have so many potentially responsible parties. And, and so often we are not the only historians hired and there would be opposing sides who also have hired historians. And so we will be at an archive and other people have visited there. And so sometimes if it's like an old, a a, a case that's been litigated for a long time or like a super fun site that they've been working on it a long time, we will, archivists will be like, oh yeah, we know what you're looking for. (laughs) Fascinating. I didn't know there was this level of drama. Oh yeah. possible for a historian I've, I've i've met historians who go to faraway places and and think of themselves like indiana joneses yeah but but, there, but there's this other um dimension to it that i think a lot of people don't know about so that's yeah. really cool mm-hmm. um i imagine that you have to explain elements of historical work to non-historians and you already gave um a hint of this when you talked about your work with that sorority about how they mm-hmm. didn't know where to go where to look for um, documents, but I wonder in terms of concepts and maybe methodologies, even language, do you find yourself challenged having to translate maybe some of these issues to non-historians, like your clients, attorneys? Or... Yeah, I I find it as a skill, but I, it's actually one I feel very comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is because I've always worked outside of academia, even while I was going through my training. And mm-hmm. so, so even when I was training, I was working jobs where no one else had a PhD in history or knew what we did. And so I always was having to explain that. And then I also think my park service work where you're explaining things to the general public and trying to boil it down helped with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, on a personal, I've thought about this a lot of, I know a lot of people in academia who are married to other people in academia and mm-hmm. my partner is an engineer and does not mm-hmm. read books for fun and is so far removed from from what I do that I find it's helpful for me in thinking in not talking in jargon or, uh-huh. or so, so I, I do think that it is very helpful in this role to be able to speak in a yeah. non-academic, non-jargonese, non like, like to be able to translate what we do. But I think it's something that kind of comes naturally to me because I've never really felt totally within academia. Yeah. If that makes, right. yeah. It sounds like you've had a lot of practice uh, yeah. um, between the networks that you've created as a PhD student, you know, and possibly dinner conversations with your partner yeah. where you had to translate these things. Yeah. And, and I find like people don't even know what archives are always like, like, the, okay, uh-huh. maybe I know the word archives, but like, what is that? And, and so uh-huh. just being like, yeah, like if you think any state agency has a bunch of papers that they put yeah. in storage and then they go to a place and they're like, oh, that's uh-huh. all just sitting somewhere. Like, yeah. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Which groups among your clients do you find um, the easiest or maybe the most challenging to work with? Yeah, I 
I think they're all like in different ways. So uh, I, I like I like working with most of my clients. Maybe some of the most challenging are times we worked for like nonprofits where, and I think it's kind of on on us too, or maybe we're not clear in the scope, like who's going to be commenting on this draft report and, and every member of the board has a different opinion and they all want to tell you what it is. And then mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of clarity of how to proceed. That can be mm-hmm. really difficult. Mm-hmm. I work a lot with the National Park Service and I really like working with the Park Service and mm-hmm. um, they're very professional and and very good about, because in the, with the federal contracting process, you have a very clear beginning and end. You have very clear deliverables that you both agree on at the beginning. Um, and so I like that. Uh, for the Park Service, we're often working for historians. So they're historians, they work in the agency, but they contract the work out. So they tend to have very, uh, very detailed comments and and you know they really want to shape our work so that can be mm-hmm. difficult but it, it makes a better product it's good sure. but whereas when you work for attorneys they're hiring us for our expertise so often we're kind of handing them the information and, and then we don't have to really there's not necessarily always a bunch of comments or things coming back I see. but with attorneys uh they, they work on court deadlines so yeah that can be difficult too. um deadlines that speed up or, or slow down that right. can definitely happen with right. litigation right. Yeah. Interesting. The the other thing I was going to ask that's related to what you just said is is how you track the actual impact that you make. But it sounds like it's depending on the domain, depending on the type of client, the metrics would be different. Um, yeah. The success indicators. And I think for us, like really, success indicators get back to: do they hire us again? Do uh-huh. their peers hire us? Uh-huh. Um, because we, we find you can tell you're successful when like they told someone else who they work with, oh, you mm-hmm. you need to work with these guys and then they end up hiring us. Or mm-hmm. a lot of the park service work I've been doing recently, we continue to win new work based on that. And so it's a pretty clear indicator that they liked our work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also do a formal like client survey at the end of each project to try mm-hmm. to get feedback and things like that. But really it boils down to like, if we keep winning work from them and their peers, we're probably doing okay. Mm-hmm. So HRA is a private company, but but I see that you know it's clear that many projects that you have worked on are um, aligned with a sense of mission that is very dear to academics, which has to do with environmental protection, social justice. Was that something that was very important for for you, or were you open to, you know, working with companies that maybe are more remote from um, from this this yeah. interest, this mission? Yeah, I think it is. Um important to me. And I think that I remember applying for this job and asking them that in the interview, because we do work for attorneys who maybe their client is an oil and gas company or Mm. things like that. And and that does happen um, at HRA. And so, and I had come from environmental, I've worked at advocacy organizations where we very explicitly were taking positions. Mm -hmm. And so they asked me like, would you be okay with that? And I, I find I think the way that I feel okay with it ethically and morally is that we are researching material and bringing it to light. And we mm-hmm. are not, especially because that really only happens ever in, in litigation on the park service side. I think it's more like, okay, it's all the same values. Um, mm-hmm. But the way I uh, come to terms with it and a lot of my colleagues is that we aren't, we're not taking a position on it. Mm-hmm. We're not massaging the research. And if a, if a client, ever seems to say, Hey, we want you to find this. We don't work for them mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. and that is a line that we draw ethically because mm-hmm. we're going to find what we find. And we are very clear at the beginning of projects that it might not be what you wanted us to find, sure. but 
we'll give you the information and then you can be the one who makes the argument, but it's not our role to make a legal argument. It's our role to unearth historical information. Are there kinds of cases um, in, you know, in that maybe your company would have turned down hypothetically or that has, or is, am I, am I asking too much? No, no, it's okay. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just, you know, I, we have just internal discussions about that. So if something felt like, okay, this would cross in, align from what we all felt comfortable with we have had discussions like that and i uh-huh. don't want to really name names or anything but no. that but we would mm-hmm. we do have discussions to that mm-hmm. extent and then we also i think the very clear line we draw like i said is if we're ever working with attorneys or environmental firms who are pushing us to make a certain conclusion we mm-hmm. we won't mm-hmm. do that so I have a whole bunch of questions that I'll try to collapse into into maybe one longer. Um, I'm interested in learning possibilities on this job. What do you feel that you learned while doing this work? Do you feel like you are growing and um, maybe informally just by doing the job? Or are you maybe taking part in some upskilling activities mm-hmm. that help you get to a place that you haven't been seminars workshops things like this yeah i have learned so much on this job i think the fast pace of it especially it um it's hard not to always be learning i feel like i'm writing about like a book length report a year usually so i'm mm-hmm. just so i think because of that my writing has improved quite a lot because i'm getting so much so many people editing my writing and copy editing my writing and mm-hmm. it has really improved in my ability to be succinct and do that quickly has improved a lot, I think. And, and that is something where, you know, I kind of have mentors within the company who are editing mm-hmm. my work. Project management skills, I think, are a really big role because mm-hmm. we are we are bringing in clients and I work as a project manager with these clients. And that's something I do increasingly more as I go along in this. Um, okay. And then um, doing those things. So you, like, supervise, so you supervise people. At also, a project level. Part of, okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. So we have kind of a structure where you have like a, I don't have any supervisees um, just in the company, but if I, but when we have project managers, it doesn't matter your role. Like that project manager is managing the project. Then you'll have people under you and it could be someone that's actually senior to you in the company, but maybe they're working on your project. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a very flexible um, organization. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So I, um, so as project manager, I'm responsible for, I mean, I draft the proposal and the budget and the scope. Mm-hmm. I'm responsible to sticking to that scope, sticking to that budget, um, divvying up the work among among my colleagues, making sure that we stick to it on time, doing check-ins with, with colleagues to make sure their work is ongoing and going well, see if they need help, um, make sure our work fits together, and then also client relations and uh, keeping the client happy and developing that relationship. Mm-hmm. Because I find that's also very important. Uh, we'd like to think so much about like how, you know, our, our research and writing, it stands for itself. But I find that having a really good relationship with the client, then when you hit those roadblocks or you're like, is this what you want? It's much easier to talk through everything. And it's mm-hmm. much easier to come to a satisfactory, uh, like agreement on how to proceed if you're at a sticky situation. Right. Um, so yeah, and, and we did, and to get back to your earlier question, that I, I have been afforded the opportunity to go to like a project management training, which was very mm-hmm. helpful. Uh-huh. Um, and also during COVID actually, because we do a lot of marketing, we're trying to get out there. And a lot of our marketing is really just showcasing our our work and, and trying to expand our existing network. But during COVID, we actually did a LinkedIn training um, to kind of in this time where we couldn't go to conferences and couldn't meet with people. How, mm-hmm. how can we utilize this, this network to uh-huh. um, kind of build our, our business? It's the, other question I had, does your work offer 
work-life balance? Yeah, sometimes not. Okay. <laughs> I think that's one thing I struggle with. Yeah, and this job, I struggle with that. And just to be open, I, uh, I write a lot and I find that my work is very intellectually taxing. Like if you're in mm -hmm. academia, you, you're not expected to write a book length report in a year. That's a mm -hmm. really, really fast timeline. And um, and it's sort of a nine to five job, but you're also doing a lot of creative work where where I'm, you're trying to put together a narrative and, and string it together and, and do, do that kind of writing. And so a lot of times what I find is if my brain isn't on 100%, I right. can't do it. And so then I end up working at night or on the weekend when my mm -hmm. brain is working, yeah. but then my work kind of bleeds into like a lot of parts yeah. of my life. And so I would say that's the biggest challenge in this job is how mm -hmm. to, because I love, I love the intellectual stimulation. I really like my mm -hmm. coworkers. I love my clients. I like the types of work I do. I like that I get to work on all these different projects and I can kind of mm -hmm. bounce. I learn a new topic where I've never known. Mm -hmm. I did a report about a park on a, in a cave and I, I didn't know anything about caves. I learned so much about caves, but uh, but that work-life balance has always been a struggle for me in this job. So moving towards a conclusion, I have a question that touches on, on the kinds of things maybe that departments could do during graduate training for graduate students to help them open up these possibilities and a vision you know, for thinking about uh, work outside of academia. I was wondering, what do you think historians could do either on an individual level or institutional level to create these pathways to, to industry in a way that other social scientists uh, have been able to do? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that one thing that I, I mean, I, when I was thinking about this earlier, I was thinking at a very like individual level that I found that I didn't always get great advice from professors. Like they tried and were well-meaning, but they had been successful in academia. And so they didn't always give good advice for how to be successful outside of academia. Mm -hmm. And I think I wish that I had had more people who who had been talking to me and their experiences, because I think it would have helped me just think through how to, how to position myself better. I, and I think also maybe having like, like, I, I remember I took a grant writing class in grad school and it was just the most helpful class I took because it was just so practical. And mm -hmm. a lot of other disciplines really work on resume writing and things like that. And so mm -hmm. maybe having someone who, who has a non-academic historian related job, like help people with resumes and with with just how to market yourself. Because I, I've spent so much time trying to figure out how to market my skills. Mm -hmm. And I think I learned a lot of that through trial and error. But I think helping students do that and maybe having people who have been successful at doing that come in to help students do that could be a good, a good mm -hmm. thing to do. That's very useful. And we are crossing into the territory where we're out of time. So I don't want to take, keep you on any longer, but um, please uh, um, accept my huge thanks for making that time to um, to speak to me today. I, I had a great conversation and I know that what you have to say will be useful to a lot of people out there who are wondering what it's like uh, you know, to be a historian outside academia. So thanks very much, Aki. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And I, I hope so. I think I definitely I feel comfortable being open that it was a hard transition for me sometimes. And I, if I can help anybody, it, it makes me happy. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>